from Amsa Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nichol. Welcome to the end of year review special. In this episode, we are going to take the best chunks designed to make you cogitate, meditate, and just reflect on what kind of year 2019 was for you. There's lots to think about, lots to dive into, so let's get started with January and Bree Montana. At a time when burnout, compassion, fatigue seem rife, what is the actual difference between those two words? And how can we as individuals recognise it in ourselves and help others around us to climb out of both of these destructive mental states? Dr. Bree Montana shares her advice. Okay, so this is really confusing, but here's the skinny on it. There's burnout and there's compassion fatigue. I liken compassion fatigue to PTSD. Right. And I will speak to people, uh, I speak to like 350 plus people a a year. I'm averaging like 35 people a month that I'm working with. And I see running like a rich vein of gold through that earthwork, I see compassion fatigue and burnout and they intertwine. So what's burnout? Burnout is easily fixed. You're working too hard. You are forget to bring lunch. You're not taking care of your body. You're like me and maybe having too many glasses of wine at night instead of sleeping. You're not making the healthy choices that we all know we should make and could make. And that's an easy fix. You know, that's you take a week off or you get a three day weekend. You schedule back your day and you feel jubilant again. You feel buoyant again. Compassion fatigue requires a little bit more work to fix. Compassion fatigue is is a scar on your soul. And like a scar on your soul, you can heal it and make connective tissue and incorporate that score into a a scar into a healthy, vibrant life, or it can become a non-healing wound. Right. Compassion fatigue is, it's real and it requires specific steps to heal it. And that's what I'm here talking about at Fetch. I'm doing five hours tomorrow and I'll just give you the short points so that I don't like. You you can make them as long as you like. There's (laughs) no time pressure here. I don't want to be like a commercial and say, you know, doesn't that bug the shit out of you when you're watching the news and they're like, and then in 20 minutes, we're going to tell you this. Tell me now I have to go to work. Oh my God. You you should tell them now because this podcast probably won't go out until the deepest, darkest winter. So it'll probably Uh, be, February. Uh, well, let so me they can't you make now. you talk. Yeah, let me tell you now. <laughs> okay, here's like the short notes, and I don't have my slides to help me, so I'll just have to be knowing it. We need to communicate with each other. One of the key healing aspects to getting through compassion fatigue, which has a huge component of honest to God PTSD, is talking to colleagues. Yeah. Sharing with colleagues is huge, and you want to share in a helpful way. So you want to share in a way that is clearing and venting you, your trauma without traumatizing them okay so you want to do it in a safe way so how do we do that like what's because like what's a what's an example of doing that badly and what's an example of doing that better um well i'm not going to do it badly because i don't want to destroy everybody's mind but you know like when you hear a story that's too gruesome and you're like kind of traumatized by the story right and it's like well i can't watch bad movies because they're just like too terrifying yeah. to me and i get like i, don't, I get too upset like the end yeah. of the end of the world movies i just yeah. don't watch those yeah but it's like it would be like uh, you're telling a story and the story is traumatizing to the person that you're telling the story to yeah. it's too gross yeah it's too graphic yeah. it's too it maybe involves for me like babies or injuring animals that kind of thing so basically this this is like the news uh, every yeah. like the, sh- the newsreel now that yeah to me feels like that's just a litany of pain 
It's like our newsfeed is now. It's kind of, it almost is numbing us. And we're all kind of experiencing a tinge of compassion fatigue over what's going on in our country, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So how do we vent in a safe way? Um, you want to make sure that the person you're going to share with is able to hear it. I'll just give the quickest example. I come home from work. I've had a really shitty day. A client that, you know... I just don't like that doesn't vibe me. It has been in and, and she's all over my brain um, and I'm renting space to her in my whole life. Right. And I come home and I tell my husband, like, I cannot fucking stand Carol Stolgren. And he says, you know, you love her. You know, you would do anything for her. And I'm like, fuck you. No, <laughs> I don't actually say that because I love my husband and it would hurt his feelings. <laughs> but he's like, doesn't get it. Or I maybe I go home and I have a really hard thing to do tomorrow. Uh, or I had a hard thing to do today. And I say, you know, uh, I have this procedure to do tomorrow it's, I'm really worried about it you know really a really a brittle patient and I have to do a complicated surgery right. and the owner is a doctor which happens all the fucking time right. or a lawyer which is the worst and he says you're a great doctor you'll be fine that is not a good vent situation for me because yeah. I'm not a great doctor I'm a learning human doctor. Right. There are no great doctors. There yeah. are lucky doctors and human doctors, in my opinion. So a good vent for me would be to call my wonderful friend Lee, who yeah. I don't talk to nearly often enough. Lee, if you listen to this, I love you. Um, and say, Lee, oh my God, I have to do this like surgery on this blah, blah, blah dog. You know, I have a full mouth extraction on an 18-year-old, whatever. It has heart disease and all arthritis right. oh. and it's Cushingoid. Yes, it's all going on. All the right. things. And Lee will go, ah, oh, fuck me. That sounds horrible. <laughs> that's a good Empathy. event. Yeah, that's a good event because she gets it. Yeah. Right? Right. What's right. better than somebody who gets it? Like I'm talking to someone and I'm saying, oh, my best tech just gave notice. Oh. And, you know, somebody – that gets it says, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, somebody that doesn't get it says, well, you know, they're like leaves in a stream. They flow along and they eddy with you for a while. And then they and once like, you finish it? vomiting on yourself. Exactly. Vomit. So that's so that's a bad vent. So there's bad ways to actually vent that's damaging to the, to the receiver. So too graphic, too gross, laying on the pain, just, yeah. and also not being aware of the emotional state of the person right. that's receiving. So right. that's being a bad. That's being a bad venter. venter. That's like that's shitting on them instead of venting with them. We all know that veterinary medicine can be a very stressful career, and for many of us, all-consuming. Listen in as Dr. James Greenwood explains how his love of ceramics brought the artist and the scientist together in a way that allows him to thrive at both. I get a sense of meditation, if I'm honest. Okay. Here we go. Let's really go. Let's go now. there. Let's just go there. So, you know, we, we go through this at the moment, the big keywords of mindfulness and meditation stuff, which I do not knock, but I can't do it. I yep. just can't do it. Yep. I've tried the apps. I've tried, yep. you know, to sort of, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. When you make... And that doesn't have to be ceramics. This might be if you knit or if you crochet or even if you garden, whatever it is, if you play an instrument. The point is, for you to do that and do that well takes you 100% into that place to, to make it work. And when you're doing ceramics, that's exactly where you have to be. Your mind cannot be anywhere else, otherwise the bowl will fly off the wheel. And it is, it's that literal. And, it, and that sort of switching off and just completely kind of letting go it's something that I cannot do consciously. I can't do that. If I'm lying in a room on my own, deep breathing, you know, omming and ahhing, it just doesn't do anything. I just start thinking, I want to go and have my tea. I'm so hungry. 
Whereas ceramics does make me do that. You know, I do genuinely switch off. And I think that's where it kind of saved me a little bit. And, uh, you know, amazing. And it's opened so many doors for me. I mean, it all started by giving myself time is the first thing. Finding what was missing, which was artistic endeavors. Yes. Opening the door to, to ceramics. The ceramics then led in directions that I couldn't ever even have dreamt when suddenly I'm looking at Facebook and there's a television show asking for ceramics to appear on the next equivalent of the bake-off and from there it has just literally transformed my life and that you then became i guess at that point dr james pottery vet and a, a new version of you the rebirth it was it was like a occurred like a caterpillar to a sort of slightly dusty moth <laughs> uh yeah it was it was literally being unkind like, to yourself, uh, that was that was sort of where it so tell me about that so what happened so you've done your pottery you're selling stacks of dog balls <laughs> yeah of all shapes and sizes and unforeseen colors and things yeah <laughs> you're having fun you're reconnecting with who you are inside i have a question about purpose which is maybe a, another rabbit hole which is, we'll be here all day if i take us down that you mentioned purpose earlier and finding that purpose and i think that's something that a lot of us struggle with we get into veterinary medicine we've chosen when we're i was 17 when i went to vet school I was mm. 13 when i first walked into a veterinary practice no way at that age can you know what your purpose, what you're on this planet to be. So I suspect that a lot of us are in the same shoes, that we've gone down a route because we something. For me, it was my parents heard vet and it wasn't astronaut, fighter pilot or anything really dumb. And so they went all in on that one. They're like, great, we'll take that (laughs) in the Wheel of Fortune game. So they chose that. But that doesn't mean it wasn't a great decision for me. Now, for me, it was a good decision in the end, but that was just blind luck, really. And it's not like it's plain sailing all the way through. For you, you found your place in things and found a way of being a vet and enjoying that and everything else. And you've, you've discovered that. And you might not have an answer for this. It's kind of a deep existential question. But how do we go about... Do you have an insight through your art into how we go about finding purpose? Like, you found it. Is there a process that you could identify by which you found it? Or did you have to actually go to rock bottom in order to take that time and, and have that gap away to go, this is just what I feel inside would be a good thing for me to experiment with? I think it's probably the latter, to be honest. I think it was a case of, you know, now I look back, come out the other side of something like that, and I hand on heart feel so kind of grateful to have gone through something so sort of emotive because it, it's taught me to, to sort of, it's taught me a lot about myself. It's taught me a lot that in situations I actually can cope, surprisingly. What were the big lessons you learned about you? I learned to take care of myself, <laughs> basically. That was the key to, to start to love myself. Isn't that so? That sounds like it should be stitched on a napkin or something. But it, it kind of it was that tattooed on all it, of our foreheads <laughs> in the mirror yeah. every morning. As that, it was it was it was a case of I for so long had hated myself or hidden away who I was, and then decided actually I feel like inside I am actually a good person. So why am I not feeling like that on the outside? And I wanted to change all of that. Some people listening to this might think, God, is he, what's he talking about? Because you do, you hide it. And, you know, it's all very much internal grief and internal yeah. suffering. Yeah. On the outside, I was happy, you know, new grad, going out, getting drunk, having great times. It was brilliant. And all of that genuinely was really good fun. <laughs> but at home then, I'd sit there thinking, mm, this just isn't is really, this really it. This isn't really working. This isn't a good way to go. I think looking for purpose is interesting. So then once I started this big sort of dog ball empire, I quite quickly recognized that I'd lost the love 
for making these dog bowls. And again, I was very quick to recognize that actually I didn't want to go down that route either. So I stopped making them. Not altogether, but I stopped taking in orders, dealing with money. And I think it's because I recognized that the two things that I loved in life was my art and animals. The animals side of things with veterinary has slightly been contorted in a way that I don't think I've ever lost my love for animals, but they've become a job rather than a passion. And they've become, it has changed my relationship with animals. Yes. The ceramics, bringing in the aspects of selling and money and the pressure of reaching orders, I recognized that it was going the same way. And so I stopped it and said, no, I want to bring ceramics back to me. This is my thing for me. Yeah. And actually by doing that, I now have regained a lot of the underlying love for animals again and now i go to work and i just think this is why i am a vet this is i really missed vetting the choices we make in veterinary medicine with our careers or with our lives have huge impacts dr jessica wilson was having a pretty tough time in her career and then she found something that changed it all she found a focus she found a purpose a purpose that has propelled her not just from being a successful veterinarian but now to being a successful professional athlete Listen in as she describes her transition from vet to athlete and poses the question to us all, if you're willing to go after something, how bad do you want it? The answer to that is going to go a long way to determining your success. I want to be on the stage, but I've never done a competitive sport in my life. I've never been on a stage before. I don't know. What if I freeze? I don't know if this is for me, but you know what? Damn it. I need to try it. So I started a prep and that's that's bodybuilder talk for preparation for a show. Usually it's about three to four months, depending on kind of where your starting point is. So I start this prep yep. and I didn't take it super seriously. Sorry, Eric, if he listens to this, but I didn't take it super seriously, but it taught me a lot about the discipline and I wasn't as disciplined as I am now for sure, but it taught me, all right, it taught me how to lift because I had to learn obviously how to do the exercise really correctly so I can yep. build the muscles that I needed to stage presentation. So I, I hired a coach for that and the glitter bikini, you know, all of it kind of came together and I did my first show and I'm dating this guy. So he's only ever known me being on a restricted diet and, you know, being the crazy bodybuilder and getting hangry. So it's different now. But back then, I mean, this is, and he was, he's an athlete himself. So he respected it and he was supportive. So I get on stage, March, 2014 was my first show. I can't even recollect hearing anything. Thank God I have video of it. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't see anything. But damn it, I nailed it because I persistently practiced. And I placed, I qualified for national. Now, the the way it works is you do a local show. And if you place top three or top two now, they made it more competitive, then you can qualify for a national show. At a national show, if you either get first place or second, depending on the show, you then become a professional. So I qualified for a show. Looking at my physique back then, great physique, I'm proud of it. It wouldn't cut it today. But this was five years ago. Yep. And so I just remember feeling elation. It was exhilarating. I'd never done anything like that before in my life. It was terrifying. But oh my God, I nailed it. And I had a blast and I made amazing friends. And I was hooked. Hooked. Is hooked. the friend circle good? Oh, um, you very. Know, there is, it's a competitive sport. It's very competitive, but very but supportive. It, it's supportive. Absolutely. Well. Yep. You know, in the beginning at the amateur level, yep. yeah, you see the ca- – and I speak for women, and the men I'll say the men are worse than the women as as far as like the drama and the va- – it's, va- it's a vain sport. It, it right. is. But as far as the drama and the cattiness at the amateur level, yeah, you see it. But 
those people get weeded out really quickly, you know, those people. And, and if they do succeed, they humble real fast. Yeah. The more competitive they get. Right. And so you're going, you're going to meet people who are just absolutely. so much Absolutely. So you get humbled. And so I reached pretty substantial success very quickly in the sport. What was pretty substantial success? Just like? continually placing top yep. first place. Yes. Top two, top three, yep. you know, nothing below that. Yep. And then I did my first national show. So I did a show in March. I did a show in May. I decided I'm going to prep myself for this first national show and I'm going to go pro. Oh, my God. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't know. Um, but learning experience. So I did that national show and I had a blast. I did very poorly. I had imbalances in my physique that, you know, as an amateur then I didn't see. Yep. And I prepped myself. Did you get feedback? Did they oh, give uh, yeah. Feedback? So there's a whole judging panel. It's a whole system. There's a judging system. It is fair. Some say it is all, you know, paid off or like who you sleep with. Well, I haven't slept with anyone except for my husband. So, and I'm still successful. So it is a judging panel. They are professionals outside of bodybuilding. Right. Um, so normal, everyday people, wonderful people. And so they, they give very honest feedback yep. and and I've learned a ton from and become friends with some of those individuals actually so from the standpoint of that first show I didn't do very well but I had fun lots of fun and then I realized okay I'm ready to take this to the next level that was my third show ever amazing mm -hmm. and so I'm like I need to get serious and I need to hire the best person that can get me to that trajectory where I'm gonna rock star it yeah and get to the top so i hired my coach kim odo he's local in california yep. he coaches people throughout the world i mean he is he's like the shit in the bodybuilding world yep. and i hired him my first show with him was then in november of 2014 yep i won my class and it was a completely different physique he's magic as long as you follow instructions any mentor can mentor you but if you don't listen if to what they're saying the and do the work you got to do the work so i did the work i was a completely different person on that stage and I won my class. It was like, without a doubt, I almost won the show. Wow. The whole show. I came in second. I lost to my teammate. Like, great honor that is. It's Absolutely. like, oh, kept it in the family. So that was like the taste. And then we, you know, strategically started to talk about what shows, exposure to certain judges, that sort of thing. So I did a show in Northern California, top three again. Then I did my second national show ever, first with him, but second national show ever in Chicago. That was a, almost a breaking point. And, and the reason it's important um, for vets and for bodybuilders, for anyone, is you've got a dream. you got to, you get just how bad do you want it, right? Back to that. Best physique as an amateur. Like this was, to me, I look back at those photos, best physique as an amateur. I came in pretty much last. And this was a, a slightly more competitive show from the standpoint of only first place would get you that pro card. And yep. It's a card. It's a professional status. They missed me. They missed me. And, and it happens when you have a group of 30, 40 competitors. Yeah, you can get missed. But I, I didn't get it. Yep. I didn't get it. So I was boohooing myself and sob storing and, oh, my God, why? It didn't hit me until the next morning. So the show it was a two-day show, which is tough physically and mentally. But the Sunday, we're getting ready. We're going to leave Chicago. My husband literally had to pick me up. And Chris Wilson, you are amazing. My husband literally had to pick me up from the ground from sobbing and ugly crying because <laughs> I, it got in my head. Yep. That defeat. Yep. The so much sacrifice. And this is what was going through my head. And like I said, this can apply to anything. Vet med, med school, law school, whatever you're trying to achieve. All this hard work, dedication, the money I've put into it because it's not, this is a very expensive sport. The finances, the sacrifice, the not going out with family and friends, yep. you know, just being so consistent and just the hours, the blood, sweat and tears, literally. Right. And I didn't get it. 
why? What happened? Is this right? Do I still want this? And I had to pray about it. I had to meditate about it. I had to soul search. And so he got me out of the funk. They, you know, we toured Chicago, had a few, you know, I let loose a little bit and I'm like, all right, cool. Go home. And I'm like, all right, do I want this? Fuck yeah, I want it. Yeah. Hell yeah. And guess what happened? I'm not going to give the ending away yet, but every single damn day, I would do my cardio or I would go to the gym all while I'm working full time as a dentist, yep. being successful in the practice, taking care of my patients, taking care of my home life. My husband and I were married at that time already. Every single day I woke up, all I could think about was Dr. Jessica Wilson, DVM, IFBB professional, Dr. D and I would write it down. I would speak it. I would write it. I would think it. It's all I thought about. Now, yeah, is that obsessive? Yeah, but obsession is what it takes sometimes. Just like when I was applying to vet schools and I'm like, I'm going to be Dr. Jessica. My name was different at that time, but I'm going to be doctor. I'm going to be Dr. DVM at my, you know, behind my last name. Six weeks later, I went pro in Las Vegas. You won. I won. In Vegas. Mm -hmm. Second place. Yep. But remember how I got that C in calculus? I still got into vet school. <laughs> Are they nurses or technicians? A question that depends on which side of the Atlantic or Pacific you're born and raised. If you're in the United Kingdom or Australia, we have veterinary nurses. If you're in America, we have veterinary technicians. So what's the difference? And why does it even matter? Let's listen in as Nicole LaForest explains things and why she feels passionately that a new terminology is needed to recognize the amazing work that our nurses and technicians around the world do every single day. So the goal of the initiative and any initiative, regardless of the title, um, is for standardization is right. so that we can at least vouch to our clients, even our patients and our the practice owners, veterinarians, that we are licensed. This is our title because we have gone through this training. And so the goal of the initiative is not only to standardize because we all can agree that standardization is key to propelling our, our profession into the future and, and as well for patient advocacy. Now, another aspect of the initiative is we want to raise the standards of care and we want to make a, a, a living wage. But what people need to consider is that that will only happen if standardization occurs. Yeah. Until that point, we can't expect that we're going to be able to move forward if we have unlicensed people calling themselves technicians, if you have technicians calling themselves nurses, and so on, so on, so forth. But, you know, it's basically, it's just to elevate our profession to kind of be like, hey, we know just as much as our counterparts do in human medicine. Right. Let's raise those standards. But we also we, we need to put, you know, the money where our mouth is. You know, the initiative has been tentatively passed in one state, but it has been rejected in two states. Right. So why was it rejected? The ANA, so um, the nurse, the Nursing Association of America um, knocked it down and they had a very um strong argument that, you know, we cannot take their title because we have no idea what we're doing in our profession. We obviously don't. And um, it's, you know, it's very apparent that we don't know what we're doing still because we don't know what to call our paraprofessionals, technicians, assistants. And if we don't know what we're doing and what we're called, how can we go ahead and take a title that they have literally spent decades upon decades fighting protecting so that they can be in their own right nurses. So the title vet nurse, if you would envisage and look forward 15 years, what would be the ideal thing in the marketplace? And use the word paraprofessional there. And that, that's the sort of word that sometimes you see technicians visibly wincing at or hissing at you Correct. or growling at you like Correct. a dog, like we tend to do in veterinary hospitals. Yes. Hey, you know, I'm all, I'm all about the stirring it up. So yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> 
paraprofessionals, it is a tough term to swallow. But, you know, if you look at the definition of it, we fall into it whether we like it or not. Right. So, um, you know, we can, I can win at it myself, but, you know, I very by the book and if I look at the book that's what a paraprofessional is and that's what I am right. you know it doesn't mean my lo- my role is any lesser than the no, doctor less important exactly it's just that's just where it falls in in the dictionary and that's semantics so so the drive to become to use this term veterinary nurse that in the future is a validation of the hard work the effort correct that, that you guys have also a tiering system to say look this person has what it takes to be this level. Your pet is safer correct, correct. or at a level. And right now it's just a, a mess with, I mean, I don't know the difference in LVTs, RVTs, techs. You know, there's so many different yeah. terms banded around. What's interesting, and not a lot of people know this, um, and this will be a very quick point. Um, so we have um, LVTs, RVTs, CVTs, um, and then we have um, licensed veterinary medical technicians in one state, Tennessee. And so basically, the reason there is difference in the title is registered anything in um, the healthcare profession is those are going to be the individuals that are able to do a lot of medical either testing, diagnostics, etc. They they have a lot of leeway with the law. Now, if you go to a state where we're licensed, we can do a lot a lot of skills but we're not going to be able to do as much as those registered individuals and so consider um, and this will be the only time I say that so when you're thinking of an RVT so registered vet tech which where which I am in California my scope of practice and I, sh- I shouldn't use practice but um, scope of what I can do is much greater than what I can do in Washington state and because in Washington I'm only um, I'm still restricted to do certain things under levels of um, supervision yep. they're considered licensed and then in the states where there are certified veterinary technicians we have to consider that those people they're still great at what they do yep. absolutely great they're able to do a lot legally but they are still prohibited by the law on certain skills, certain supervision levels. And it's that part they can of do. the problem, not just the names, but the fact that every state has a different interpretation of what they do. Absolutely. So what you're really trying to do is get something at a national level and get all of the VMAs yeah. to agree yeah. something and make change happen. So what needs to happen next in order for you to, to make more progress? Like, uh, are the VMAs speaking to each other? Who's funding the half a million that you've spent already? How much more is it going to take to get your objective? So the first thing we need to do is get a VMA in every state. And there are certain states that don't have veterinary medical associations. And so that would be the first step. There are two states, and don't quote me on that, but I think if I remember correctly, there are two states that do not have a medical, a veterinary medical association. That would be the first step. Um, and then typically in every in every state, there should be three entities you're looking at. You're looking at the Technician Association, you're looking at the Veterinary Medical Association, and then your Board of Governors or whatever the equivalent is called. And you need to be in collaboration with all three entities and just have an open discussion. Where, where do you stand on that? Okay, I don't like where you stand on that. Can we talk about why we don't like it? And can we get on board with the same title so that we can make a public stance? And, you know, it's hard because... Our field is so unregulated that right now the funding is primarily coming from corporations and we are really at the beck and call of what they want us to do and what they want us to be called because Banfield, VCA, a few other large companies are spending millions of dollars so that we can fund the fight. And so we can't ask private practices to offer millions of dollars to fund an opposing fight or fund whatever they want to fund. We're basically at the mercy, honestly, of corporations at this point and uh, the direction of what um, NAFTA wants to go in. 
internet legend, top five global blogger, and multiple-time New York best-selling author Chris Brogan shared some of his advice on how Ventry practices can invest their energy to build their local tribe. And if you're interested in alternative uses for ketamine to treat depression, this is kind of an eye-opener as well. Nike in the U.S. just launched a big Just Do It campaign on the anniversary of Just Do It, and uh, NFL player Colin Kaepernick was their stand-behind person. This was a massive statement. And Colin Kaepernick's big push is against police violence. The people against him are trying to make it against the military, against they've really piled on rhetoric to make it such. So you wonder how did that help Nike? They had one of their best quarters in 10 years. You want to take that out, Adidas, your, your European friends, Adidas, decided to make shoes out of ocean waste and they sold 2 million pair. So the way they did it was that the National Football League, which is full of money, denied that money to this gentleman who said, I think I should be allowed to protest because they've given me a massive stage. And they were like, we didn't really think about this before we set up the rules. We didn't expect you to have your own opinion. We wanted you just to be an employee. That's the NFL. The other side of it, Nike and you know Phil Knight, no longer really part of the company, but very voiced in that company says, this is insane. This young man, full of ideals, said, I'm going to step forward. And he made everyone look at all the the content. And I, and it was not his idea alone, but you know, everyone who said, let's look at this said, we just did a great spot with this, this uh, female fencer who uh, fenced in a hijab. So we launched the Nike hijab line and all that at an inflection point where there's sentiment there. And he, they said, this is what Nike stands for. And that's a challenge. So millennials and younger now are saying that it's something like 80, well, 54.6% of uh, stats are made up. Right. So as many as 80% of people 37 and younger uh, want and, and sort of demand that their uh, values work in alignment with the corporation that they want to buy from. If I could buy a coffee cup from two companies and one punches cats in the face, I probably will buy it from the other one. Unless it's cheap and then, you know, out the window. But um, the uh, alignment has to matter, right? So some corporations come and they start... Gillette Razor Company comes out and says, we need to teach men to be better men. And the internet loses their mind. And the internet says, here's your Gillette advertisements across the butts of a whole bunch of women. Here's you saying sexist things. This is the least accurate portrayal ever. Now we're a veterinarian, right? What's a veterinarian's very dangerous message going to be? You know, one might be, why don't you treat your animal like you want to treat the planet you could you could get somewhere there you know there's with with tribe stuff the question is always if i were to plant a flag in some way that i want to show this is my thing how do i i have this phrase that i haven't worked into anything yet but i'll give it to you first let spider-man be spider-man and uh, i was watching into the spider-verse that animated one that came out What is so great about this movie is they just let Spider-Man be Spider-Man and he does the things Spider-Man should do and he shoots his web and picks things up and that, right? If you are to attempt to reach the people you hope most to serve, once you've identified in your head who that is, what that looks like, name her or whatever, then you say, you know, I know that your BMW gets detailed once every two weeks. Your dog's teeth are your BMW because that one detail will change 
the gut health of your animal for a bunch of weeks. And once we know something, we can't unknow it. You know, so then you start thinking, okay, what's the next message like that? What's the next message like that? And it's all from your belly. And you're just saying, I'm just going to keep serve. Like if I'm going to serve posh women, this is how I'm going to message them. And that, that's being a little flippant, but, you know, understand that there's a lot of ways. But step one, identify who your market is. And, and when you're in local business terms and you're not looking across national demographics, sometimes that can feel a little more constraining and and there's a pressure to say well actually you know in a town of 10,000 people I know 5,000 of them have got animals and I know I need a thousand active patients per year per doctor to make this a, a viable business and there's three other vets so I maybe you don't feel like I can be too choosy I'm going to steal terms here but how do you create blue water or can you create blue water with your messaging with your your voice, your authenticity, your personality in, in small business versus the red water when you see congested markets. You know, I'm thinking like dentists have the same thing. There's a dentist on every corner. Uh, and nail salons and everything else, you know. <laughs> there's there's an everything. I, I live in a town that's only 2,000 people and there are three pizza places and five Chinese places. The way that goes is that you don't ultimately need 1,000. That's at a price point that where you figured out annual checkup, six months something, a couple of shots, my profit on that. The ways around that are there are people who want to spend more and there are people that want to spend the least. And you, you should serve both. You sh- it's never a matter of how do I find the most expensive client. But there are people who want the best everything. There are people who want concierge class service. My shrink who I mentioned, if I went with sort of the court-appointed healthcare official shrink, it would take me two, three, four months to get a visit. Well, because I pay cash, I go the day I ask for the visit. Right. If I run out of a med or suddenly you know, my drug wears off, I'm there the day. He started a strange side business that I, I poked him a bit. I was like, you literally sell Botox now? And he said, I do. I said, can you justify that, Mr. Shrink? He goes, I can, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> what did he, he say? Says, you know, you inject someone's face and they stop frowning. And the psychokinesthetic language of teaching your face not to frown actually ups your endorphins and dopamine levels, and you technically will feel that burst of happiness. I said that is baloney, but it sounds good for a shrink. In June, my guest was Yola Kirpenstein. Yola is an accomplished oncological surgeon and also works as one of the most senior vets in corporate affairs with Hills in America. Now, Yola's vantage point on the profession having spanned across both sides of the Atlantic from Europe to North America, plus having worked in both academia and in industry, gives him some pretty unique insights on the profession. In this short clip, he shares his insights on how perhaps we might craft education in the future so that students and young professionals burn out a whole lot less. There's a huge difference between the US and Holland and how people look at how to excel. Yeah. What are the differences there then? So in Holland, if you stick out, that's not good. So this is almost tall poppy syndrome. Yes. Same so, as Australia. So really what you want to do is you want to be part of the masses and you want to really work hard and you want to, it's the group that excels. It's not the person. In the US, when I came there, it's the individual that excels. So you better be the best of the class. In Utrecht, I never thought about, you know, we don't even have a ranking. So because when I applied for my internship in the US, they said, okay, can you give the percentile that you're in your class? It was impossible. Right. You know, I had to go like 
15 different people to say, okay, can you at least say if I'm in the top 10%, maybe the top 5%? And it was impossible because they didn't look at it. So very often it was pale fast. Yeah. In the US, it was. So I remember my ophthalmology student rotation. It was zero to 100. Okay, 100 was kind of impossible to get. But people were, you know, you needed to get a 90 plus. Otherwise, you were a failure. Right. And... For me, as a European student, when I came in, I was that was an eye opener. I was like, "What? Why?" Is that healthy? Like, which one of the two do you think is better? I think it needs to be a combination because right. you know the inertness of what happened in Utrecht at a certain point, and the extreme what I call sport vetting here. They're both unhealthy, right? So you need to kind of have a combination. We got what I took back to Utrecht was you need to have a healthy competition. Yep to at least show the people that want to excel that they excel. Yep. Because we, you know, for instance, we didn't have awards for students that were the best and that sort of things. And that's what I think is healthy. The unhealthy part here is that it can destroy your life if you are not the top, which is, you know, you can be a C student and have an absolute fantastic career. And when their medicine gives, opens so many doors to be successful, and you don't have to be an A student to be successful. And that's something I got from Holland. You know, from Holland, they taught me you have to be nice to people. You have to be a good person. You have to do a good job. Good is good enough. And then, yeah, if you can combine a little bit, like if you feel that you excel in something, that's what you have to go for. But you go for it because you like it, not because you have to. Right, and that sounds like that's a you know it's contributory to this whole blight of perfectionism that that seemed mm-hmm. to dog a lot of veterinarians, maybe more so young veterinarians. I, I I have no scientific basis for saying that, but it's one of the things we talk about so much now. Here said over and over is, and you hear of students burning out now because they're so stressed about getting the best marks possible. I, I forget who said this. I said the A students will end up, you know, academia, some kind. The B students will end up working in practice and the C students will be hiring everybody, all the A's and the B students. And there certainly seems to be something to, you know, the C students, everyone's got something to contribute, but the C students are working on other bits of their game than just exams, exams, exams. Everybody tries to put things into, you know, H buckets, which I'm not a big fan of. During my student period it was very stressful too it's it's different times i realized that but i remember that we had a student that committed suicide for instance which was a huge blow to everybody um the stress it veterinary medicine is just a very stressful profession and i think that you excel in veterinary medicine if you can balance the stress that you have during your studies but also afterwards with the positive things that you do and the life-work balance. Because another thing that uh, Holland, Scandinavia is very famous for is work-life balance. For instance, you know, in Scandinavia, and we talked about that yesterday a little bit during the opening ceremony at the WPC where we are right now, is that you get a year off both parents if, you know, if you have a baby. Yeah. Which is very healthy. Yeah. Here, you get two weeks off. I mean, which is very unhealthy. And so that work-life balance, which 
the newer generations seem to focus and care about a little bit more, which is completely healthy, and please keep on doing that, is something that either rescues you from veterinary medicine and your further career and burn down, burn out, than if you don't focus on it. So I think that that's something. I'm a workaholic, and I totally, anybody that tells me that I'm a workaholic, I will say, yes, that's true, but I'm a workaholic that knows how to enjoy his time off. In July, my guest was Lizzie Lockett, CEO of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, and she shared some wonderful insight into how a fixed mindset had afflicted her and probably lots of vets out there too. This clip is especially powerful to listen to if you're one of those people that perhaps suffers with a bit of a fixed mindset. How would you know if you're one of those? Let's find out from Lizzie. I'm one of those classic people. I don't know if you you know the kind of closed mindset, growth mindset stuff. Yep. So I'm a, cl- a classic, yeah, I'm a classic closed mindset person and I battle with that all of the time. So if somebody criticizes my work, my first reaction is always a folding of arms. I've now learned over my many years to unfold my arms and to listen and to take heed and to learn, which is really, really key. But there's still always a little nugget of that's my identity because I've always been the clever girl. So always you're a good person because you're bright, right? Chocolate making is involves a whole different set of skills. And if I stuff it up, I'm so curious to learn how and why and so keen to get feedback from people so that I can learn. So it really opened my eyes to how energizing it is to feel like that about something and then to try and take that and put it back into everything else that I do. I know that sounds a bit corny, but it's been really important to do something like that because normally I'm one of those people where... If I can't do it brilliantly, I won't even try. And just because you don't want failure. Don't want, don't even want to try. This is sounding remarkably similar to a group of people that we might have some form yeah, of relationship funny to. funny that, isn't it? I think I'd, I've always had that closed mindset, but I didn't recognize it as a thing and understand that it was a thing until I started working on the My Matters project for the college and reading about some of this stuff. And then when I read about that, it literally was a light bulb moment, you know, literally ding, ding, ding. Gosh, that's me. That's been me all this time, which isn't to say that I hadn't tried to deal with it because I, but I just didn't call it that. So I, I've always recognized that I'm a really difficult mix of, I wouldn't say perfectionist because that's a bit hackneyed, but being somebody who really wants to succeed, but also having a real imposter syndrome and a real sense of low kind of um, ability. So classic conversation will go something like, I can't do that. I can't do that. Then somebody will say, well, you don't have to do that. What do you mean I can't do that? Of course I can do that. I'm damn well going to do it. And so, so I almost need somebody to sort of poke me and push me in, into a different direction. But I have always, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where at school, I was in a, a really big mixed comprehensive school. It was a great school up in, in Yorkshire. And I was always in the top one or two in, in my year. And right from being very, very small, so my mum had this lovely story. Apparently, when I was about three, four, maybe I was at nursery school. Mum came to pick me up after my first morning and I was in tears. And my mum had said to the, the nursery nurse, why, why is she crying? Well, there was a jigsaw she couldn't do. And mum was like, well, you know, I'm sure she can come back and do it again. And they were like, no, no, no. She did all of the jigsaws apart from one. It wasn't that there was one I couldn't do. It was one out of 20 that I'd already finished that I couldn't do. And that made me very angry. And so I've always had to balance that with kind of recognizing that, you know, there's that thing about, uh, it's quite hackneyed now, isn't it? That fail is your first attempt in learning. But actually, for me, fail can be my final attempt in learning if I'm not really, really strict with myself. And so I totally recognize that amongst veterinary professionals who have always 
worked hard it's it's unfair to say that people you know get good grades without trying and you do really work hard but you've had all of that and then when things start to go wrong that that can be really really difficult because you've not built up a mechanism to get yourself back on the bike because you never had to get back on the bike so you don't even know how to do that and I, I see that very much with, with students or if people there's some really interesting work that Rosie Allister has done which says that students can work really well all the way through their veterinary career but then if they have something that goes wrong in their first job in practice then they start to struggle um, and just to give a personal example I mean cards on the table you know I always thought I would get a first at Oxford I was always told I would get first at Oxford I didn't I got 2-1 I didn't graduate for 10 years so I didn't even want to go near the place I didn't want to pick up my certificate I didn't even want to think about it and if anybody said how did you get on I would say I'd failed I would literally say I'd failed they thought I'd failed my degree which sounds now looking back on it 20 whatever it is 30 years later stupidly melodramatic and ridiculous totally ridiculous and you know very kind of Charlotte Bronte hauling myself across the, the Yorkshire Moors in despair but actually in reality that is how I felt about it you know, and, and if there was a kind of a lesson to myself at that young age, it was that actually nobody gives a damn what degree you'd have got. Nobody's ever asked me since. It's never been an issue. You mentioned um, having some mechanisms by which to change and alter that perception. Have you employed any tools specifically in, in your own journey to help shift your mindset? Yeah, definitely. So firstly, if somebody criticizes, so, so for example, my career today is largely been around communication so a lot of that is about writing and writing is quite a personal thing so if somebody comes back to you and says I think you should do it like this your first reaction is but that's my writing that's my writing but actually is to say no this is a communications tool so how can I better communicate so try and make it as objective as possible and then that extends to everything else that you do so it's not about me doing this thing it's about this thing being done for a purpose and if I can improve that purpose then that's all for the good I think working in teams really helps with that as well because you, you start to recognize what your contribution is and what everybody else's contribution is and to really understand the richness of the importance of diversity I suppose the richness of that work and to be fair the higher up you get in an organization the more you understand what you don't know so you have to ask people you can't possibly know everything you know we have a, an organization here of 120 people with lots of different departments with lots of different specialists in I'm not a lawyer I'm not an accountant I can't do all of that so I, the more you you become humble and understand the need to learn from other people the more I think it's easier then to take people's criticism of the things that you've done and to use that as a learning experience and to say okay what can I learn from that and even if your first reaction is physically or mentally to fold your arms is to unfold them and to change. And I think if people don't do that, then you just become stuck in a, in a particular place. Burnout is a term we typically associate with the younger generation of vets. But in my conversation with Dr. Robert M. Miller, it became clear that burnout has been around for decades. Indeed, it was the business owners of single doctor owned practices that suffered the most from burnout. Listen in as Dr. Miller shares his innovative strategy to avoid burnout, something that became de rigueur across North America and the world thereafter. One of my professors said, if you want to do horse work, you only have two choices. The horse is a disappearing species, thanks to the internal combustion engine. Mm -hmm. You can either do racetrack practice. Yep. And I'd worked at the racetrack for two years at the starting gate, did not want to do racetrack practice. Or said you have to locate in ranching country because the horse is needed for cattle ranching. Yep. So here I saw an area, no group practice, no veterinarian, local, but it had the possibility. And I thought, I think I can build a group practice here. Right. So you've had to shift your thinking from, I don't, I want yes. to be a partner. Yes. But now you find the perfect opportunity. So Dippy and I rented a house and 
I opened a practice here. Two years later, I opened an office because the area was starting to subdivide. People were coming in with dogs and cats, and yeah. and uh, the rest is history. I built, when I got up to eight doctors, AVMA told me, you have the largest mixed practice group in the United States. Well, that would not no longer be true. Right. When I retired, we had 12 doctors, which included an annual internship for a new graduate. We did that for 25 years. And today, I'm a client of the practice. The small animal has, last I heard, 23 veterinarians. Wow. And the large animal, which does horses only, yep. has six full-time veterinarians. So I built that group. I pioneered group that group practice. And I realized that I was pioneering a future trend because I started to get letters and telephone calls from veterinarians. How is your group practice going? How is, yeah, I'm working myself to death and I, I'd like, I'd like right. to do that. Yeah. So there's a couple of different avenues I'd like to ask a little more about there. So sticking with the generational theme and an interest of mine is in training and helping the next generation to cope, get the leg up as it were into practice and, and cope. The learning curve now, I mean, I think the learning curve has always been quite steep, but almost like there's a fear now that, that stalks people, a fear of litigation, a fear of making a mistake, a fear of everything going wrong and being played out in this phone and social media or whatever. Back then, did those fears exist in graduates? I think about when I started out in practice and I was probably more foolhardy than fearful. But did fears exist for graduates you know, when you were starting and also when you were employing graduates in your internship training program, what was the mindset of those graduates then? If there was fear, I, they never expressed it. Eagerness to learn. By the time we started our internship, we had a reputation. I published technical papers. I also wrote a column, Mind Over Miller, for 50 years. And so I, I got to be known in the profession. One thing I didn't mention is that at the midpoint of my career, at which time we had six, six veterinarians, and each of us had a responsibility. And Jim Petty was in charge of the business. He's the only business mind that we had. Right. <laughs> and Jim says the horse practice is growing in quantity and quality. I think one of us has to kind of start to specialize in horses. And they all looked at me. I said, wait a minute, I started this practice. I love the variety here. And they said, yeah, but you're the only horseman in the group. So I agreed to do it for one year. Right. Mostly horses. Not We didn't divide it large and small. Yeah. We divided it as hospital practice and field practice. Huh. Well, the field practice, as the area rapidly subdivided, there was less and less cattle work. Right. And more and more horse work. So I said, I'll agree to do field work. That included the elephant farm and the camel breeding farm, for example. Maybe the lion. Uh, yeah, the, whatever the animal was. It was if it's not at there, the hospital. It was right. out. Got it. And besides, I like to work outdoors. Right. Especially in the California climate. Yes. Agreed. So I agreed to do it for one year. But I said, I want you to promise me that if I'm not happy, that I'll go back to what I've been doing. 
one month later, next staff meet, we have monthly staff meeting. I said, I just want you to know that I didn't realize how I was being overwhelmed trying to keep up with all species. I said, it was overwhelmingly to keep up on the cutting edge of small animal medicine and exotic animal medicine and birds and dolphins and whales because we got clients, to, you know, other large animal clients. How did you come to that realization? I suddenly felt the pressure could get off of me. Hmm. I was doing 98% horsework. Yeah. Completely at home. Yep. If I had to pick one species I especially liked, it was horses. Yep. I had done everything else. Yeah. In, as I said, including sea mammals. And uh, I suddenly realized that, and working out of doors full time. Yep. So I told them that I'm perfectly content to go on like this. I've done it all. And uh, I'm still part of it in this practice. And I'll still do occasionally wild animals. And there's still a few cattle around. And but I'm very happy doing mostly horse work. Positive psychology clearly has a big role to play in maintaining a happy, healthy mind and balance in veterinary medicine. But how do you weave positive psychology into your everyday to make a difference? Let's hear from one of the early proponents of positive psychology, Dr. Steve Noonan, as he shares some of his life experiences and what he does to maintain a positive mindset. The mindfulness piece, and you and I had a great chance to meditate today in our pine forest even though it was like 130 below <laughs> it was it was it was awesome wasn't it i actually got i got frozen in position i would yeah, have sat yeah. there for half the time no i'm kidding but meditation we're sitting in front of my fire right now that's one of my things every morning i have a gratitude journal for sure and i i journal every morning my brother-in-law now here's a tale of woe very quickly but it, there's a, an important piece to this my brother-in-law, who I gratitude journal with every day, he's a triathlete. He was doing a weight workout. He felt dizzy, collapsed. It was diagnosed with an aortic aneurysm. So they had to open his chest up and completely reconstruct his aortic arch and put in a, a cow valve. Now, apparently, as soon as your chest is cracked open, Part of your rehab therapy is working with a psychologist. Did you know that? I did not. I did not know that. Because you literally do get a broken heart when your chest is cracked open. And so he was really depressed after this, but they worked through that. And then his wife passed away in an accident falling downstairs. Oh, boy. Before he recovered. Oh, man. And this guy, I'm telling you this because this guy, my brother-in-law, he just, and then now, this is all within a year and a half, a major intestinal accident has had to have his intestines removed and a colostomy, okay? This guy gives me the best gratitude. There's a, a light everywhere, people. I'm not trying to bring you down. This guy gives me the best gratitude notes every morning. So I sit in front of my fire, I have coffee, I read his gratitude notes, and we share them back and forth every day, what we're grateful for. And then I do my own journaling and then I send back to him. So that's that's one of my biggest things. I do this gratitude with coffee and a fire and my brother-in-law every morning. How long does it take to do that? And what sort of things would you be journaling? I'm very simple. I take 10 things that I'm grateful for right now that I think about. And sometimes there'll be repeats. Like I did it this morning before I saw you at the airport. 
And one of the things I'm grateful for is that Dave's coming to visit. I've just um, eaten you out of house and uh, home with uh, beautiful I'm, chili. <laughs> uh, I'm grateful for this cup of coffee. Sometimes I'm grateful for my pajamas. Sometimes I'm grateful for the fact that we saved that dog with ITP yesterday. So it's it's quite variable, but there'll be 10 things and they're legit and I try to make them heartfelt. Heartfelt is a big thing, uh, people, with gratitude. And the way you do that is you can close your eyes and breathe really deep. And that good feeling you get in your chest, like right in your heart as air comes in, try to think that way with that feeling on everything for which you're grateful. I mean, I'm grateful for shelter when it's 30 below. It's brilliant. Here in North America, we are so spoiled. Everything to be grateful for. I'm curious about you know, some of the things then, you know, the, the quality of the gratitude notes you get back from your brother-in-law, what sort of things, because that's, uh, you know, there's some crushing blows in there oh. that he has ex- oh. endured. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting now that uh, this guy, he has two healthy adult children who adore him, for one thing. He's found a new lady friend who adores him, and the children adore her, and this all... And so now he's got this woman who's supported him fully in spite of taking him through the the intestinal bit, the whole thing. Like, so he's just, he's grateful for her friendship. He's grateful for the wonderful doctors he has. He's got um, like one of the most gorgeous golden retrievers you'll ever see. That's won a bunch of championships already called Teddy. Yeah. And Teddy is just like, tinderball of energy so almost every day there's something that he's grateful for about teddy and uh yeah very refreshing to read this so mindfulness journaling music um, music you heard all my guitars and ukuleles people i don't sing well but i will carry a tune but i do know a lot of songs and and i do know a lot of chords so i'm the guy that can go to a house party and just have some fun so i really really like my music and uh when i'm by myself playing and singing my little heart out i could be at carnegie hall in my head i'm just having a great time great time love love music have you found your equilibrium now the question it popped in my head there was actually one of our previous guests on blunt dissection and it really became I guess, I guess for a lot of doctors, we get wrapped up in this sense of our identity. We almost don't have our own sense of self beyond that of being a veterinarian for a lot of doctors. And I, I've always always yeah. a vet, but I never identified myself no, necessarily. That's as that. never been a problem for me, right? Like I am the servant of Diane. Yeah. You know, the devotee of Diane. Yeah. I am the uh, father of Amy and Katrina. I am a, a lord of Lachlan Farm. I'm a musician. I'm a veterinarian. I'm a son. I'm a brother. Like all those things, for sure. Right. I've never been hung up on that. In October, my guest was Bill Schroeder. Bill is a veterinary internet marketing guru serving thousands of veterinary hospitals across America. He's also a former Marine. Now, it was back in the Marines that he started to learn and instill some of the core values that serve him to this very day. My advice? Listen in to Bill and build values into your day if you wish to maintain a positive mental state and have boundless energy. If you can work in accordance with your values, you're going to be happy. 
If not, prepare for an inner war. Let's hear from Bill. What are the things that paid, have paid the biggest compound interest to you that are applicable in to all of our lives? I think it's integrity is where I would start. And if I were to point back to a particular, I don't know that I could go back to a particular time where I learned that. It was through the Marine Corps, though. I, I realized that I am representing an organization that... I have a responsibility based upon others that came before me to uphold the traditions in their honor, in their memory. Mm. Maybe it doesn't necessarily have to mean because they passed on, but it could be the, oh, wow, they like oh, that idea. Somebody just yeah, they're big fans of integrity. <laughs> right. <laughs> but maybe it's the vet that's over at the other end of the bar that is proud to see that the, the whole place hasn't gone to shit, you know, and that oh, we're taking care of the traditions right. like, like he would expect. And integrity is one of them. So being honest to myself, being honest to my family, my employees, it's really, really important to me. And when I'm not honest, which let's just face it, it's really impossible to expect that everybody is honest all the time. When I I can tell you that it is almost a curse that I feel sometimes physically ill. Yeah. Because they, you know, <laughs> they just drove it into me that it's important. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. You told me a funny story once, and, and I feel like we can't move on without sharing this story of the, All right. the time you were doing sit-ups in the sandpit. Oh, yeah. And, and then, then what happened next? So there's this thing that they do and I can't remember what they call it, but it's basically a punishment for doing something wrong. And they'll take, first off, they're really great at pitting you against one another. You know, like if you did something wrong, well, you might not need to go to the pit is what it's called. Now I'm remembering. You might not need to go to the pit, but the rest of the platoon would. <laughs> oh, <no>. So, <laughs> so... In this particular time, it that, wasn't... That, that, that is not going to make you popular. Oh, no. You're but, getting a beat. Well, in the beginning, people want to kill you, you know? But then they realize it's all part of a game because every good buddy's going to wind up standing there. So what happens is they'll take... Oftentimes, they'll take the recruit and they'll have him stand at the beginning of at the, where the sand starts and watch everybody do sit-ups and push-ups and roll around in the sand. But the story you're thinking of, I believe is one where they took us to the pit and we had just cleaned our barracks. We had just cleaned them out and so that they were Marine Corps clean, right? Meaning you could probably eat off of the floor and be quite happy about it. And then somebody did something wrong, so they take us down to the pit and we're doing sit-ups and, and all this kind of stuff. And then while we're doing sit-ups, they have us grab uh, handfuls of sand and then hold it over our heads and give us sand showers, you know? And it's something I forgot to tell so you. you have to do that to yourself? Yes, you have to do it to yourself. And something that I forgot to tell you is that there's this weird mix of them, you feeling like they want to kill you because they're very brutal and they're not very kind, you know, when they're communicating with you. And then they really want to take care of you. So, like, they make sure that you drink a lot of water and... They always made sure that we were putting sunblock on 
like constantly, you know, because so it was very weird. Like it's like, okay, make sure you put your sunscreen on and you got this like giant like mean drill instructor like telling you all these things, you know, and so now let's go back to the sand pit. We've applied our sunscreen. <laughs> And I'm like just sticky mess. And then we're like raining sand over ourselves. And then what they did is they had us tuck our shirts into our trousers and fill our shirts with sand, you know, by in the back of the collar. And then we went up into the squad bay and they made us change clothes. Well, the sand was everywhere, and what happens is drill instructors, they, like, they change shifts. So, like, the first guy will leave and the next guy comes in. Well, it was shift change for him. So the sand was everywhere, and the guy that's coming on duty just lost his shit because he comes in and he's like, what the hell is all the sand doing on? And then we had to clean the, the barracks. And then because we had made a mess of the barracks, he took us down to the pit again and, and rolled us around in the sand. So, you know, what's that saying? Uh, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. So you had asked, and we'll get back on to marketing maybe someday. But when I took you to a little story that we should share is I took you to the recruit depot and we saw a graduation. And we were walking right by the general's quarters. And on our way after seeing the graduation and you looked at the grass and I believe you had some kind of line like I don't know like you'd think that they use real grass and because you thought it was like the fake astro I thought it was you thought it was astroturf and I said that's I real grass and you said that's not real grass I said yeah it is so you bent down and you touched it and and I've told that story like a million times, like to Marines, you know, like he actually thought it was fake grass because it's so perfect and so green. And that's because there's some recruit that's like taking care of that 10 by 10 patch. And that's his whole job for a two week period of time is to take care of that, that whole grass. But anyways, so I digress. And thank you so much. You know, thanks for allowing me to tell, you know, the Marine Corps stories and for allowing me to credit something that I really value a lot. The word veterinarian means a lot to us. Actually, it means just about everything to us. So much so that our entire identities become consumed by this one word. And sometimes when it doesn't work out, or if we're not finding our pathway, that word can feel like a blind alley, a cul-de-sac, a place where we can't see the way forward. Well, in this little clip, Dr. Sheila Robertson reminds us life isn't a straight dotted line between A and B where A is the start of our journey and B is the successful outcome we crave. Life, rather, is a weaving, meandering, tangled ball of wool, where it doesn't always go according to plan. Dr. Sheila Robertson reminds us of this when she took a gap year simply because she couldn't find a job. This is the Dr. Sheila Robertson, who is one of the most qualified and humble people in veterinary medicine. So let's listen to what Sheila had to say on her gap year. And perhaps, if you're not finding your career going exactly as you planned, or you're in a bit of a cul-de-sac, or you're too wrapped up in the word veterinarian as your identity, perhaps what you'll take from this is, it's okay to step back from the coalface. And it's okay not to be a vet for a bit. So right after graduation, I went and worked in a private practice, mixed animal practice in Warrington. Yep. And we might have mentioned that. Yep. And then I did my first sort of training down at Bristol as a house surgeon. And that's where I went from, flipped from surgery to anesthesia. Yep. And 
Then I did my PhD there, which I loved, and was looking for a job, couldn't immediately find a, a job in anesthesia. So took a little bit of time off and went to Switzerland and cooked for skiers and did that. And then I was like, oh, I need a job. <laughs> no, wait, 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 wait. I need wait, a job. Wait. That's, let's that just pays. backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. Because, right. So talk me through. So you finished your PhD. Yep. You've completed, you've had your interrogation and submitted yep. your thesis. You have the, the letters before your name now. Yep. And after. To Shelley. Shelley girl. Shelley girl. Where, yep. did, where did you go and what was the decision? Was this just a like, stuff it, I've had yeah, enough no, of no, academia well, at it this was point? A, I didn't do a gap year after university. So, you know, and that wasn't really a big thing in my day. But um, I was actually really looking for a job and I couldn't actually find anything. Specialized in anesthesia, you know, in the UK at that time. And then I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, I love to ski, but it's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't have a lot of money Where there. Where did you learn to ski? Were you, did you ski in Scotland? or? Uh, no, I didn't actually. Not it much. It certainly wasn't um, Bristol. So I went over to Austria, like, with some friends and Ooh. took lessons and learned and then just got the did bug. Did you go to Ischgl? Uh, Kitzbühel. Kitzbühel. Oh, so, <laughs> one hot. Yeah. So got, <laughs> Seriously, one hot. <laughs> so got, got the bug. So I applied for a job with a Scottish um, ski company yep. called um, Activity Travel yep. as a, you know, sh- what we call chalet girl, but for Americans, <laughs> that might not sound very good. Um, <laughs> basically, that was looking after a private chalet, cooking, cleaning, you know, helping out the guests and so on. So yep. I applied for the job, got the job, and I was sent to Verbier. So I was there from November of eighty. 80- 84 until the following summer actually because it's a glacier resort yeah so long ski season yep and it really taught me to do something i'd never been trained to do you know cook for people that were starving every night you know which kind of starving and drunk (laughs) yeah so it helps because they would just about eat anything because they've been (laughs) skiing all day but i'm actually quite i was was going to ask like what was your culinary forte at that point just had learned by cooking for all my friends when I was, you know, at university. At university, and so it wasn't like blue cabbage soup, a la. No, yeah, Bridget I mean it was Jones meant to be, kind of you know, somewhat cordon bleu, but yep. it was good solid food um, yep. for skiers. And you know, afternoon tea. Of course, we made afternoon tea and cakes, and yeah, and that was interesting science project living at three thousand meters. Because, you know, water boils at less than, yeah, <laughs> you know, it boils at a much lower temperature right. and then your raising agents have to be all altered at that altitude. So baking was an experiment in itself. Oh, no. So did you have to relearn all of that yeah, stuff? Yeah, I had to. You actually, so there wasn't like courses you could take and say, hey, like your muffins are just going to be flat if you don't. There's actually high altitude baking recipes that you can look up. And it tells you how to alter all your ingredients based on altitude. Right. So uh, my my yep. brain wants to step through this for a second. Do you need you you must need do you need more baking powder or less because um, the... well, if you put in too much, it tastes just like bicarbonate of soda. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Right. So there's a little mixture there, and um, you know, it's just like science, like suddenly triggering in. Yeah. When we were skiing on the mountain each day, you know, and it was it's a bit it's a high resort. I yeah. kept wondering why you couldn't get a really hot cup of coffee there. Forgive my ridiculous ignorance, but are we Alpine? Uh, uh, yeah, in, in the Alps or are we in Pyrenees at this point? So Verbier is, you know, sort of like, it's not that far from the border with 
Italy. Okay, right. Yeah. So you're sort of up in the high altitude, and you can see the Matterhorn from. Yeah, there. right. Okay. Yeah. So, you, so yeah, 3, you never meters. get a hot cup of coffee. You couldn't. You just like I was like, and then I of course realized, okay, oh yeah, you know, water boils, <laughs> like you know, at a lot lower temperature at right, that altitude. Right. right. So <laughs> you're not going to get like, a good cup of tea yeah, anywhere yeah. there. But then I kind of figured it all out because I understood like that vaporizer, anesthetic vaporizers work differently at altitude. So uh, like. And that used to come yeah. up on our, all our exams, like, you know, what if you're trying to anesthetize a patient in Colorado? Yep. Da, da, da. So I was like, okay, this makes sense. <laughs> Do you have to run your anesthetic gases at a lower percentage? Yeah, well, so your vaporizer, so setting, your vaporizer setting's at the same, but what's actually happening is all a little bit different. And is it ha- what's happening in the body or no, what's happening not, in the vaporizer not, not really, itself? But almost everybody that you anesthetize at that, or every animal you anesthetize at, at high altitude, you know, has a much higher hematocrit. Yeah, of course. And maybe they're... different blood gases, but their oxygen content's normal because they've compensated. Right. So all this physiology that I had learned from all my NSCs exams kind of came around to remind me that the coffee wasn't going to be hot. <laughs> So folks, that is it. Officially a wrap for 2019. Before everybody dives off, I just want to issue a couple of thank yous. So first of all, a massive thank you to all of the 11 guests we've had on the show this year. They've all been magnificent. They've all added so much value. And uh, I just want to personally thank you all for giving your time so generously, so freely. Uh, It was absolutely an honor and a blessing to get to spend that time with each of you. Uh, and I wish you and your families all very well. Now, my second thank you is to you, the listeners. Uh, and obviously, without you listening, without you showing up and, and consuming the show and interacting with it and telling everybody about it, there would be no show. Uh, and, you know, it's not so long ago I was wondering if anybody would listen to this. And now several thousand of you listen to this every month without fail. So my heartfelt thanks to you for showing up uh, and for supporting the show in the way that you do. Uh, Now, also a thanks to the team here at VetX International that make this podcast and all of the other work we do possible. There are many, many people that help me uh, and I just want to say thank you to all of you guys as well, from the designers who design the logo and lay out the books and the courses to my business assistants that have helped bring everything in. They are the legs that paddle furiously beneath the surface that you guys don't get to see, but they really are the glue that stick everything together. So thank you to all of you that have supported. Now, a couple of things before you jump off. In order to keep the podcast going, I would be super grateful if you would make a recommendation on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. Number two, tell your friends about it. And you can do that word of mouth or shout it out on social media. Share the episodes. I would so appreciate you doing that. And then the third thing, if you want to support us financially, the easiest and best way you can do that is just buy a t-shirt for Blunt Dissection or you can buy a book, Show Your Vet and I Want. Or if you really want to, you could always join one of the VetX communities. So that is it. Officially a wrap for 2019. We look forward to seeing you again in 2020. So from all of us here at VetX International, be safe, be well, and be happy. This is Dr. Dave and the team, signing off for the year. 